This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to trek fm's dedicated books and comic show i am one of the hosts matthew rushing and here with me as he wait dan where's dan dan dan's not here i'm bruce bruce i kidnapped dan what i thought oh that's right dan is on his super secret top secret Section 31 mission. That's right. So we had to get him out of here so he can accomplish his mission. And who knows what he's going to bring back from that mission. So you'll have to tune in next time to find out. Next time on Literary Tricks. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> well, hey, Bruce. Uh, how's it going, man? It's going good. I'm so glad to be here. I've been having fun lately. And to... uh now talk, do news with you. That's that's even better. It's just a lot of fun to be here. I love talking about Star Trek and Star Trek books and comics for sure. Well, you know, it's great is that we actually have a news item to talk about. And there is a brand new Star Trek book coming out called The Star Trek Book. What a great title. That <laughs> I would never expect anything to be called The Star Trek Book. But yeah, it's coming from DK. It's coming out in June. And it's everything you want to know about Star Trek and more. It covers all the series. It covers all the movies, including the two J.J. Abrams movies. Maybe, maybe we'll see something from beyond in there. I don't know. But if you like DK books, this is the ultimate one. Yeah, this is a cool idea, you know, celebrating the 50 years of Star Trek and really kind of giving, as they say, this comprehensive guide to the series and the myriad of different worlds and dimensions visited by the crew of the Enterprise. And so, you know, uh, covering, as you said, TV series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, that's great, uh, really gives, I, I think this is a great way to get people reintroduced to the Star Trek franchise, you know, especially 50 years. You know, if, if you haven't, if you're a person that hasn't had a lot of experience with Star Trek, this might be a great way to get somebody into Star Trek. And if you have, you know, this is a great way to relive all those great memories and have them all in one place or to have a handy guide to hand to somebody who wants to know more about Star Trek. Yeah, it's not necessarily an encyclopedia where you would look up every alien or every planet that's mentioned. It's going to focus 
on your main characters, probably on some of your more popular planets and technology and ships, and it's going to dedicate several pages to that topic. So, for example, there'll be maybe two, four pages all about everything about Janeway. And actually, I'm looking at a preview of that page right now, the opening page for Janeway, and it's called The Caffeine-Fueled Captain. So it's got some play in there, too, that kind of makes it fun, the fact that she's always drinking coffee. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I'm, You know, what's exciting to me uh, about this book here is that I I want it to be something that I can help explain to other people why they should get into Star Trek, why they should care about it. You know, and I'm really hoping that that that, that can happen, you know, with details of what everyone needs to know about the 50 years of adventure on the final frontier, as they say here for the book, is pretty exciting. And, you know, something we haven't done in a long time, Bruce, but um, how would you judge this cover? I would judge this cover as being gold because it's a gold tunic that actually that Kirk wears in the new movies. So do you want me to sing about judging this cover? <laughs> no, we don't have to sing about it. Uh but no, I you know I, I thought that the cover choice was interesting that it is the JJ verse tunic, and and so very representative obviously because the other pictures we have are the communicator, the original Enterprise, and Spock from the original series, and right. so all of that is evocative of the original series. But you jump all the way forward with the JJ verse, and so you've covered you know encompassed all of the Star Trek. Right. somehow on this cover by doing that so it's it's kind of nice it, it and it i think it looks really good i'm i'm this is uh this is a good cover i don't know if it would get anybody sufficiently excited but um i think it's uh it's a good cover and it's very eye-catching because of that you know command yellow yeah i like it it's too bad there's not going to be it's not going to be a three book series where you would have the gold, red, and blue, and you could put them all next to each other. But it is a very nice, clean cover, uh, and it does bridge from the beginning of the 50 years by having those images you talked about from the original series to the Chris Pine tunic that he wears, the captain's uniform as the... It's almost like the book cover that, you know, when I was in school, I'd put book covers on my book. It almost yeah, looks like you took yeah. a shirt and put it around the cover of the book. Well, and and this is for free for everyone. This wasn't on the news, but uh, you mentioned it. This is not the Star Trek Encyclopedia, and that is coming out this year—a complete reference guide for the future. And it's been revised and expanded to cover every single part of Star Trek, which is incredible. It has over five thousand entries, and this has been redone. And there's it comes uh, as a a wonderful set here. So. You know, that is actually going to be coming out this year for those that are interested. In fact, both of these come out uh, this year. We've got the Star Trek book, Big Ideas Simply Explained. That's coming out in June on the 7th, and that's hovering around 20 bucks right now on Amazon. And uh, that Star Trek Encyclopedia, like I said, for everyone for free, it's coming out. Well, it's not going to come for you for free. That The information was just for free in the news. Oh, I only That's wish coming... it were free. <laughs> Me too. Uh, that one's hovering around 90 bucks, and uh, it's coming out in October on the 18th. So a uh, big year for Star Trek books. Man, I've been waiting for, I got to tell you, I've been waiting for 
a new Star Trek encyclopedia like that for a very long time. Yeah, because I think the last one we got was what, maybe around 1999 or so. it was in the late 90s. It didn't finish all Voyager. Yeah, it didn't even finish all of Voyager. It was like fifth season Voyager, I think, at most. Yeah. And so, yeah, there was a lot for it to cover. And the fact that we're going to get it through all of the Prime Universe is really the thing that I'm super excited about. Whether it covered the JJ-verse or not, I wasn't uh, too concerned. But um, the fact that it's covering the entire Prime Universe is really what excites me the most. So, yeah, we have some great things coming up this year. Uh, in in Star Trek books and and uh, the nonfiction books as well. So I hope everybody's going to check those out. And uh, just a couple quick things, of course, uh, before we head into our feature, where we're going to be joined by a special guest. Uh, you can find all of our shows at iTunes.com/slash/TrekFM. We're a feature provider there for iTunes. Uh, you can find all the shows, and uh, you can find literary treks along with all of the shows. Now, uh, while you're there, hit us up with a star rating and review. Uh, you know, it helps people find literary treks when they're searching for podcasts in iTunes. And iTunes is really the place where people get most of their podcasts. So if you look at our numbers, if you did, you'd see that at least 80% of people get their podcasts through an Apple medium. Just where the numbers are so those uh, star ratings are due do wonders and don't forget you can also send us a voicemail go to speakpipe.com slash trek fm and you could leave us a voicemail we'd love to have one of those we're also on twitter at trek fm we're on facebook at facebook.com slash trek fm of course you can email us at trek.fm slash contact just go there choose a show choose literary treks and that'll come straight to dan and i and, of course, uh, we have our listeners-only discussion group, the Babel Conference, on Facebook. You'll be able to find that by typing Babel into the search field on Facebook and then clicking Join. We'll let you right in. And, of course, uh, you can also click Discussion on the menu bar on any of our show pages on trek.fm. That's our website. And, of course, because we're Literary Treks, we have the Goodreads group, which is a place for everybody, a fan of Literary Treks, to go. You can find out uh, what we're going to be reading, what we're currently reading, what we've got coming up. We've got the bookshelves with all the previously covered books as well as comics. And it's a great place for conversations that are happening about the books and comics. So we hope that you will join us there. Bruce, I, I'm so excited tonight. Because uh, as, as we let everybody know in news, Dan is not here. He is on a super secret, top secret mission for the Vulcan High Command. Can't tell anybody about it. Uh, or Section 31. I can't tell. It's hard to make a difference anymore, you know? Yeah, all we know is his mission is logical. Yes, yes. So, But what that meant was is that uh, we, we could always use more help. Uh, talking about the book, and I'm so excited to be joined by the one, the only, Brandon Shamatullah here on Literary Treks. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Gosh, it's going great, man. Uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's great to have you. Thank you. Uh, before we get started, I just need to know, is Matt the only person who can sing? Or can I sing too? Oh, we can all sing. Yeah, we can all <laughs> sing. So, in fact, maybe we could do a round later on. Uh, row, row, row your boat gently row, down row, the stream. Row, row. Merrily, 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 merrily. Yeah, whatever. Okay. Yeah, wow. Well, <laughs> we'll yeah. work on that later. Yeah, we'll, we'll do that around the that campfire. <laughs> Excellent. Can we have marshmallows? Excellent. Yeah, marshmallows. Mm. <laughs> I have my little That dispenser. was all for John Mills, who <laughs> loves Star Trek V, as do I. So. When I was a kid, I loved Star Trek V, and I uh, 
I, I never actually read those Wheel of Time novels, but I liked the concept of what I thought they were. So I tried to write my own book and I completely started it by plagiarizing the campfire scene from Star Trek V. Just with my own characters. <laughs> it's a great thing to plagiarize because it's one of the best scenes in Star Trek, regardless of whether you like Star Trek V or not. The character work that's happening at the beginning of the film is is really good with the main three characters. So it it really is. It's it's some of my favorite stuff in Trek. Well, tonight we're not here to sing, even though I, I'm sure that if we had an entire show of singing, people would tune out. We're actually here to talk about Kobayashi Maru, the Enterprise book, as we're kind of continuing on in our Enterprise, the early relaunch. Uh, we've already talked about, obviously, all the Rise of the Federation books so far, but uh, we're going back in time and looking about when Enterprise was a little bit newer in the relaunch, and uh, we finally hit Kobayashi Maru. And one of the things here that I thought was interesting about the storyline is the way that Archer is slowly coming into his own and I'm especially looking at this retrospectively from the Rise of the Federation series where he is in a much more political role but I thought it was really interesting that Archer is really learning how to be his own man and his own like, a politician when he needs to be he's, he's really learned some new skills yeah he's definitely in the thick of it on both the action frontier side and also from the political side of things, he has to actually go back to Earth and meet with a coalition of planets and and convince them of what's going out there in the field and bring all these different races together that make up the new organization. And he's kind of that linchpin that this organization needs. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, he even with the Klingons, he's involved. He's involved in a lot of things, and it's pointed out to him too by Captain Hernandez of the Columbia that he's he's a politician. He's getting more political. Even she points out to him about the Zindi crisis was very political too, and he was involved in that. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it's a it's an expansion of where we saw him end up, um, and it's a way to see him build into what we saw in These Are the Voyages. Right. And uh, I know that these books have taken these other voyages and and moved it ahead six years or moved it back six years, I guess. But we see the development of him acting as a political leader and a future leader of the Federation, which is which is interesting to go back now with that after we've read the uh, the uh, Rise of the Federation novels and to, to see this again, because it's been a few years since I've read this novel. It's been about four years. So it's nice to get that and, and watch him grow as a future major political leader for the future federation. And we're, he, I don't even think he's sure he really wants to be in that role, but he just falls into it and he does it so naturally. It comes, it comes naturally to him. He handles it very well. What's that saying? Great leaders have, uh, are, are thrust into the situation. What's the word I'm trying to paraphrase here? They don't seek leadership. They have leadership thrust upon them. Well, and, and what was so cool about it was the way in which, um, he uses the the alliance that he's made, you know, in his travels. I love the way that he is able to call upon T'Pau and his relationship with the Vulcans through all that he's done for them in recent years and be able to use that relationship. Uh, you know, she and him work this out so he's able to appear before this coalition council 
as a representative of the Vulcans because they agree and she doesn't want to make the journey. So she's just going to have Archer do it. And I just really loved the way that he makes that happen. And it just, it says so much about the character of Archer that he's learned how to make friends in high places and that he's not afraid to use those friendships when need be, you know, and that's that's the hallmark of a good leader, of, of a leader that he's not arrogant about it, you know, like I just I really like the characterization of Archer in this book because he's going to have some really hard decisions to make throughout this story. Yeah, he's humble about it, really. I mean, to Paul, to Paul sends him back to Earth to make a speech and Captain Hernandez says to him, well, you know, Jonathan, you're actually getting pretty good at making speeches. And he's basically he's looking at it and, and realizing, yeah, I keep having to do this. I keep making speeches, but then I want to be out there on the frontier and just, and, and do it and explore. And that's what we were meant to do, but he's fallen into this position and he's been doing such a good job at it. Right. I mean, he's, He's got this opportunity to do what he's going to be doing best. You know, they've got them on this mission of like, you know, just going back and forth and patrolling his own, right? And he's, you know, he's getting antsy, he's getting frustrated because he wants to do more and wants to handle more. So to be able to use his political influence to get out there and and uh, fight the good fight where he's actually needed, which is in the the political room, it's it's, it's great for the character. Like it really shows. Yeah, it it shows a real sense of I think understanding. You know, he he has a greater understanding of the universe. I mean, what's so cool is to to look at him side by side with the Archer of the first season of Enterprise and just see how far this guy has come in, you know, this these few years. It, it's really an impressive uh, work of of character work, I think, throughout the series and through these books. And they're really doing a good job of, of creating a a guy to which you'd think that a Kirk would look up to, you know, like that's what I love about these stories is especially with Archer creating a character to which people can look to, to say, I want to be like him, you know, like a Kirk would say, I want to be like an Archer or I'm willing to take orders from an Archer. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So really love that about this book. And I think it's, it's a strong point and, on top of that, I think it's really interesting because we have the other side of T'Pol and she's kind of learning this idea of doing some things, the wrong things for the wrong reasons. Uh, she goes to save Trip because she's having these visions and thinks that's what she should do. But when she gets there and she has the conversation with Trip, she comes to the realization of just how wrong she was. In every sense of the word, like that what Tripp's mission is, is so much bigger than what she was thinking. And the fact that his mission also kind of holds the balance of, of this galactic area of space in his hands, like, and just realizing that she was completely wrong. And I, I thought it was so interesting because I love having the imperfect Enterprise characters having a place to learn and they need to grow. You know, that's one of the best things about Enterprise is the characters aren't quote unquote Star Trek perfect yet. Yeah, at the start of this, her her focus was about rescuing Trip. Trip was going to die. She had these visions. 
So she was so focused on getting to Trip and saving his life without really considering why Trip is there and why Trip may need to stay there. And then once she gets there and they actually do save his life, then, you know, let's let's go. Let's go home. And that's when she realizes after talking to him that he's got bigger fish to fry or catfish. That's right. He likes catfish. So, you know, it's it's something that I don't want to get all romance and whatever, but love in a lot of ways propelled her to go find him. But then she realized she needed to let him go. Back in January was when I messaged you about this, uh, Matt. I said, you know what, I wanted to I wanted to join in on this podcast after you guys did uh, The Good That Men Do because this was my favorite Trek novel, like one of my favorite Trek novels, period. And going back onto it this time, I didn't like it as much. And this is one of the plot lines that I didn't like as much because it felt, it felt forced to me and it felt a little phony to me. You know, so this whole plot line of, of Reed and Paul stealing the shuttlecraft and working together, it, it felt out a character for Reed to me. And it's not that, I don't think it felt out a character for T'Pol because we've seen her grow. But by the time she gets to this planet and saves him, it's, it's completely unnecessary because he just goes back to what he does. I mean, the only thing that they get accomplished out of this is that Trip gets some action. You know, and so it, it, it felt... So you're saying it gets a piece of the action? It gets a piece of the action, which is also referred to in this book. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, t- twice now. We have two different types of piece of the actions. <laughs> it just, it felt a little forced to me this time around. Like, I still really enjoyed the novel, but I didn't enjoy it as much this time. And this this plot line was one of the big reasons why. It's so funny that you mentioned that we were talking before... Uh, on the other side of the page, this whole idea. And the only thing that, uh, as you were talking about that idea, that stuck out to me was that it it creates a good plot point for the future for Trip. Because as we move forward with Trip, we're going to get a character who's kind of moving farther and farther into the shadowy world, the shadowy darkness of the intelligence world, and he's going to start to lose parts of himself almost in some ways. And the only thing that really kind of keeps him grounded, keeps him connected to his humanity and who he was and still is deep inside as Trip Tucker is his relationship with Paul. Now, that does not fix what you just said, Brandon, for this book. Because you're right it does feel kind of forced and it is kind of weird that the only thing that really happens is that trip gets laid and you know, it, it's nice that um, uh, this is the time where we can tell that for all intents and purposes that Hoshi realizes that trips alive. Uh, and, um, but it's it still, it, it doesn't, it needed to feel more organic somehow to the story. Right. I completely agree with you. Uh, unless, I, I I don't know, unless maybe the whole point was to have T'Pol realize that she's more human than she thought at this point. Like, uh, she's more wrapped up in her emotions than she thought. I, I don't know. That's another thing that you mentioned there with Hoshi knowing he's alive too. I mean, like, out of the seven original characters here, 
you know, it, it, how many of these people know that he's alive still? And he's, it's supposed to be some deep cover operation. Like, this is some bad spy work when everybody knows that the spy's, you know, not dead and the, the cover story's not good. We got, we got Archer knowing. Not quite dead. <laughs> we got Archer, we got Phlox, we got T'Pol, we got Reed and Trip. That's five of the seven. So that Mayweather doesn't know right now. And I'm drawing a blank right now. Who's the other one? Well, I think Trip is, of course, seven. He knows he's doing it, right? I think I think Mayweather's the only one who doesn't know. Right. And it's like, it's just odd, you know? It's just like that everybody on the ship knows it. And I don't know, like, it's just, again, going back into it this time, it's like a little bit less believable upon a second read. Well, Hoshi figures it out in this book, but we don't find that out till later books. Right. I don't think this book really clarifies the fact that she figured it out. So really, when you read this book, you're thinking Mayweather and Hoshi don't know. Right, we don't figure out that uh, Hoshi knows until the newest book right. in the Rise of the Federation series, but she tells us she figured it out now, Yeah. which as I was reading it again, I was like, oh, it's pretty clear that Hoshi's picking up on what Trip's laying down. <laughs> exactly, like she she clearly knows in this story who it is, and I when I read it, I got the impression that she does, like with the the name Lazarus, how can you not? I mean, you know, the the biblical story of Lazarus is the guy coming back from the dead, right? So, I mean, I don't know. It just felt odd. Yeah, it's like Captain Obvious. You know, it's it, it, it would be like if you had typed out Captain Obvious instead of Lazarus. It's, it's pretty much the same thing here. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's the fault of the previous book, uh, The Good uh, That Men Do, because that's really when the majority of them find out about Trip. I didn't think... Because I read these books several years ago, too, and I didn't realize it was earlier in these books that T'Pol figured out that uh, Trip was undercover. I was thinking it came later, like in this book or even the book after. So really, they find out in the very first book of Trip joining Section 31. Yeah, I remember that happening because uh, that's the big plot point at the end of The Good That Men Do that he reveals himself to T'Pol during the, the speech. And it's, I just had to give him that one. It's so touching, romantic, and wonderful that that Trip reveals himself to the Paul, and she knows it. It it doesn't bother me as much. What kind of bothers me in this whole situation is just I feel like the connection between her and Trip and the the the, the strange visions that she's having. I I just felt like that could have been written a little bit better in the story because it's just i don't know it kind of seems to come out of nowhere and it's a little bit odd and yes we know that they've had this connection you know because they've kind of been in the netherworld before with each other uh when i believe it was the uh when trip was on the columbia they started experiencing this but i i don't know it's something it just it felt kind of odd that this was the first time that this really has come up between these two uh and then some of the visions she had were just kind of weird too so i don't know there's something about it just didn't jive for me yeah i wasn't real clear on all the visions there was visions of these cannibal vulcans or something attacking her and almost like this nightmare and i really wasn't sure how that played into the rest of the story now the visions that she has of trip make a little more sense and then she even had a vision of him looking like the romulan with the pointy ears and that's of course then what propelled her to go uh save him and and rejoins her but uh it did yeah it felt it did feel a little 
out of character in a sense. I, I, I mean, I agree with Brandon. It does seem like some DePaul may, might do, but it did. It just seemed a little too quick, and it just seemed like it, it, it just didn't have the payoff that we needed, except for the fact that, you know, they, they got it on, but it must not have been all that good because then he let her go. Well, 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's all, they, that's all they had time for, 30 minutes. So, <laughs> And poor Reed's, like, going off behind a rock and just sitting around waiting. <laughs> <laughs> yep, best buddy's getting laid. Just going to sit here and watch the sunset. So, uh, and then he comes back to the second she opens the door. It's like 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, time's up. And she's like, I'm on time. Don't worry. <laughs> she's prim and oh, proper. Oh, gosh. She's prim and proper. And Trip is all like sweating and like disheveled hair. <laughs> classic classic trip um even even with all the vulcan you know romulan getup he's got now still classic trip but you know i like the fact that he's got pointed ears and she does because they make like a, a good looking couple now that they both had pointed ears that's true that's true and in fact you know uh what's so wonderful and we will find out spoiler alert at the end of the last romulan war book is that they do end up together mm-hmm. happy and with kids. So it is a pretty beautiful thing to know that through all of this crap that they go through, that they do end up together. And to me, that's all that mattered. Like, I, you know, watching Enterprise, I loved the relationship between Trip and T'Ball because I love that it was those two most unlikely candidates for romance finding that they had more in common than they thought they did. Because they gave each other a chance, and uh, I just I thought it was it was kind of beautiful that the, they're a little bit of the opposites attract, but in the end, you know, T'Pol is a lot more like Trip than she'd like to let on, you know, because she's quite as emotional as he is. She just covers it up better most of the time. Well, if she didn't get that disease that brought out the emotions, I just wonder if they would have ended up a couple. Uh, if that didn't happen. Would she be very stoic and just unfeeling Vulcan? Would she still be attracted and ended up with him? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I think I think the circumstances of her having these emotions allowed her to bond with Trip more so than Sarek and Amanda. I think it, that their relationship is a little, even though he's with a human woman, I think his was more calculated where hers was more emotional. I mean, I think Sarek loves Amanda. But it's, I don't think there's as much emotional decision-making going on as there is between Tripp and DePaul. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right on that. But see, I had mentioned recently on a From There to Here episode that uh, I didn't really care much about the relationships in Star Trek. You know, like Crusher and Picard, I never really cared about. Troy and Riker, I never really cared about. Even like Mulder and Scully, I never really wanted to see that. But you know, now that reading this book again and thinking about it again, this is actually the only relationship that I actually did care about and I did like. And I think it's because of the emotion that uh, and the way that uh, uh, T'Pol played it so that she's a Vulcan and she's reserved, but she her emotions are a little bit more close to the surface because, it, because of her, you know, the addiction of the Trillium D and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, I think it's, I think you're right in that it is a different kind of relationship and we may not have gotten this relationship had she not had that in her past. Well, and, and that's, gosh, we're getting into enterprise, but we're talking about enterprise. So whatever, uh, apologize to warp five, but it's that's one of the things. Road. Oh, wait there. I was just singing. Yeah. 
Getting, getting from, from there, there to here. Awesome. This is perfect. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I loved that whole process that they go through, you know, especially when they, the episode of Home and the whole process of dealing with uh, what happens with Elizabeth, their child, and everything like that brings these two characters together in just a, you know, really bittersweet way. And their whole relationship tends to be bittersweet until we'll hopefully see how they finally do get together later on down the road. But I do like that they really do have this sincere connection and that something is continuing to draw them together. And that is definitely clear here, even if we do all agree that the writing could be a little bit better in what brings them together in the story. And I think that's a hard part when you have one of your main characters, and obviously Trip is one of the most popular characters in Enterprise. When you have him off on his own, you really do need to try and make him relevant to the rest of the story, and maybe that's one of the struggles that they had here doing this. You know, it, it's so cool because in the end, and it's so great, you know, Trip is becoming this shadowing man. And this guy, I mean, he keeps saving the day over and over again. I I really like how they are dealing with this whole thing of, of Trip slowly getting more and more into this intelligence lifestyle and the way in which he is becoming more and more key to, you know, the balance of the coalition and you know i i just I, I think it's 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 that's the part that for me that was really working is is his storyline and how it was playing into everything that we're seeing with the rest of uh, the enterprise storyline that's going on as we're moving towards the romulan war when i first read these books I wasn't sure if I really bought into Trip being in Section 31 when I first started off. Reed made sense to me because he's security. Trip was hired into this organization because of his engineering skills and the mission that he had to take to Romulus. But I really enjoy seeing him in this role. I think it really suits him well. He he takes uh, advantages of different situations. He takes chances on them. And he almost dies several times. And uh, it's pointed out that, you know, he keeps avoiding death. And he's very, he's very good at this job. And he's got, and he's such a great character. He's got such a fun personality too at it. And I really buy him as being in Section 31. And it really comes into play in later books. I almost want to talk about the whole series of books. But I'm trying to stay focused on this one only. But it's really good. Um and just you know, putting him with Vulcans and putting him with Romulans and just his reaction to him is is just classic trip. And he's a secret agent man. <laughs> yes, another song. <laughs> yeah, um, I I like the aspect of him being in Section Thirty One, and and it 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 is a bit forced, but I give it a pass because of how they had to try and tie these are the voyages into this timeline in a. I'll say it better way. Um, they they had this they had something 
of these are the voyages that they had to try and work into it. So how can we get this death into there? Well, we'll, we'll make it that he faked his death and into section 31 is really the only logical way that you can do it because it's already been established in Enterprise and it's been established in the in the Star Trek universe. So it, it is a little clunky, but I give him a pass on it. Um, I do I do like that he got to Romulus and it was a quite interesting um you know, being there and, you know, he had that, he was late for that meeting because he got in a fight with those Romulans on the street and it, you know, there's these cool little things that are happening on Romulus that we get this, this peek into the lives of the Romulan people and what's going on there, you know? So, uh, I I like it. I don't mind him being a section 31 agent. It's cool. And it works for me. What I thought was really interesting about him being this agent is that the importance of the intelligence that he is gathering and, you know, he ends up being the thing to which causes Archer to leave the scene of the Kobayashi Maru scene. It was his warning and what's playing out that both come together for Archer to be like, no, we have to get out of here or they're going to get the Enterprise, the Romulans are. And so the, this is the importance of, I mean, because everything that's happening in the story, all the political machinations that are going on around here, I mean, these intergalactic powers are grasping at straws and half-truths and really it's only these intelligent agents and really only Trip that we're seeing who has a fuller picture of what's happening. Just kind of brought home the idea that, you know, good human intelligence is really important, you know, in our world today, but in the intergalactic world that is, I mean, as you were <laughs> singing, Brandon, uh, intergalactic agent man, you know, like we, we, we need these things because um, it's that intelligence on the ground that lets us know the reality of what's actually happening. Well, it, it makes a lot of sense that Trip is there be- being an engineer because Romulans are fighting or trying to start a war without physically being in the war. And of course, this does a good play on the TOS standpoint that we hadn't seen Romulans before. Well, that's because Romulans weren't necessarily on the forefront of the war. They're using this telecapture system to take over other ships. They're taking over Klingon ships. They're taking over Vulcan ships. And they even try to take over the Enterprise and remotely control these ships to fight among each other and to set up this political mess of Why are Klingons attacking? And Klingons saying, we didn't attack. That wasn't us. And it gets everybody starting to doubt each other. And so when you have this collation of planets, some people are looking at it saying, hey, these Klingons, I don't know if I can believe them when they say that wasn't really them, that Romulans are taking over their ships and controlling them. And others believe that the Romulans are doing it. So there's all this conspiracy conspiracy going on and these theories going on and and the Romulans are taking the side step back and watching it remotely and trip is there to figure out hey warp seven ship we gotta stop that this uh telecapture system we gotta stop that there's all these other things in play that techno they're using technology to start the war and trip is there to try to stop it 
See, that was one of the big plot points in this book that I didn't buy as well this time around. You know, the uh, the telecapture device is great. It's it's par for the course for what the Romulans have been doing. It expands on what they did in that three-part uh, Babel arc in Season 4 of Enterprise. But it's like, I, I, the, the, I have a hard time with the plot point of nobody believes and nobody wants to believe that it's the Romulans because they're too stuck on fighting within each other. I understand what's, that's exactly what the Romulans are trying to do, but with Archer standing there saying, it's the Romulans, they've done it in the past, right? Why doesn't anybody, like, does nobody remember what happened in season four of Enterprise in this storyline? Because the Romulans tried to do this with, with the Enar and their holographic ships, and this is just a variant on that exact same tactic. Well, and I think some of these other planets and races are pointing out to the fact that, well, unless you give me concrete proof that I can show the people back on my planet, I can't just go to them and say, you know, this guy Archer says this is happening because we're fighting phantoms. We have to actually show them. So we're going to go attack the Klingons until we can actually have physical proof and show people that it's, it is the Romulans and then we'll turn back on the Romulans. But the physical proof is the fact that the Romans just tried this like six months previous in a different method. Yeah, I think, I, and I guess the only answer, and I don't know if it's a good one at all, Brandon, so I'm just throwing it out there, is the idea that this time the Romulans have been smart enough to not use some sort of holographic ship technology, but actually find a way to use... The ships. Those ships. Yeah. And so it's it's hard to... As a, a government or whatever, when you see three Klingon cruisers have gone rogue and hit you, and then, of course, the thing of we see both races have this happen, not only the the Klingons, but the Vulcans come in and destroy the ships because they're trying to cover up that their ships have been taken over by the Romulans. It's just a big mess is what's happening. And I, I think the only thing I can say is that the Romulans are creating the fog of war before war has even happened. And that's the only answer I can come up with. I don't know if that's a good one, but I guess when I think of the reality of, say, like the time period of World War One and the confusion happening there and the as we look back some of the stupidity that happens there, the assumptions that people made there. Uh, it's not really all that far-fetched, I guess, with what I'm seeing in Kobayashi Maru, because it just kind of seems like a replay, but on a galactic scale. Which leads me into this whole idea that there's this shadowy problem. And what I really love, guys, is I love that the Romulans here are like the Phantom Menace. I do kind of love that it's just so well played the way that the Romulans are so devious and they're they're so good at being behind the scenes and propping other people up to take their you know the fall for them and I, I really like that I think it really makes the Romulans one of the most interesting races and I'm so glad that these Enterprise books get the opportunity to dive into them as a race because Sadly, what we get in Nemesis, not great. Uh, so let me just be honest. But what we're getting here is really all that I kind of expected from the Romulans during that Romulan wartime period. 
I was wondering if we were going to get a Star Wars reference in this episode. <laughs> there you go. Always. Just for you, Always. <laughs> Yeah, I like the devious nature of the Romulans. I mean, it fits their character and it fits their pattern. And and while I while I critique the the plot development, like I'm not a writer and I don't know how hard it is to write a book like this and I don't really know how I would change it. I do like that it is a development and an expansion of the previous plan that they had, right? And it is a and it does lead in the future books to a really cool plot line of how the technology needs to be taken back a step on the ships. We get that in the Romulan Wars to prevent this overtaking, right? So um, I, I kind of like that aspect a lot, and I think it's neat as a, uh, what do they call it, the uh, retconning of why the technology is a little different on the original series than it is here. But uh, I, I agree. It's it's nice to get the Romulans, it's nice, nice to get them flushed out. It's nice to see their strategy, and it's nice to see this time period of this war, and because it was such a huge point in the entire history of the Federation. And it was such a huge gap that we never got to see when Enterprise went off the air. Yeah, and it's a great lead-in to going into the Romulan Wars. Uh, They are very calculating. The one thing I had a hard time buying is the fact that they have so many technological advances that have just all occurred in the past year from from their their telecapture system to the holographic, technology they use to mask their ships to the warp seven engines it's just what else are they going to come up with it just there's just it just seems to be a little too much and it's all coming from the same scientist so that part i really had a hard time that felt a little forced to me but i do like the fact that they're very calculating behind the scenes that they're setting all this up to create cause confusion and mess and get all this infighting and basically not necessarily be the ones to pull the trigger to start the war, but to allow everyone else to claim that the war has begun. And they're fall and everybody's falling right into their plans. And then we see what happens then in the next books, which I'm not giving away right now. Begun. The Romulan War has. <laughs> there you go. See? <laughs> well, actually, it's said in this book pretty much, uh, begun it has. What's what's interesting here, and, and Brandon, I think you pointed out, again, this book is setting up something that will get played off later on down the line. So with our conversation kind of about what happened with Trip and Ball, does it really work so well in this book? Eh, maybe not. It's not, it's not as well written or whatever, but it does have to play in later on down the line, as does this whole Romulan telepresence thing and them using that as the retcon for why the TOS ships and the look of the TOS ships is less advanced than, say, the Enterprise look. But it just seems like, to me, it's like, it's sad that we have to excuse some of the things we're seeing in Kobayashi Maru instead of them having been written just a little bit better so that it felt more fluid and more natural to the storyline. Because, I mean, I think everything that we're coming up with here as critiques are really valid um, I don't, I just, I wish I had a better idea of kind of how to fix them. And the only thing that I can think of is something I was talking to Bruce about on the other side of the page when we were talking about Kobayashi Maru. This book seems to be overly long without a lot of big plot points happening. What do y'all think about that? 
Well, yeah, but we were talking earlier that you felt it was a little slow. I didn't feel like it was slow. I think there are a lot of pages in here. Uh, it's over 400 pages, but I feel like it's a, it, it moves. It's a quick read. I could read through it pretty quickly. And maybe it's because the second time I was reading it, I can go through it faster. But it, now that I'm thinking about it and the significance of where we're going with this book and everything that the, Romulans are doing it doesn't feel as big as an epic maybe as it should because really we're there's just a small group of Romulans that we're dealing with here I don't get the feeling that it is the planet of Romulus that is really behind making all this happen I just feel like it's a a very small group that's involved in it it doesn't feel as big the universe doesn't feel as big and epic as it probably should going into the Romulan war so Looking at that now, I it just maybe is a is it's not quite enough. It's not as as big as it should be. I don't know, Brandon. What do you think? I think that uh, all of the books in the Star Trek franchises now, like the post finale Voyager ones, the post finale Enterprise ones, they're all they're all long and they're all very determined and they've got a very determined pace to them. I don't think this is particularly slower compared to any of those other ones i think that they've all nowadays have got a lot into it and it's one of the reasons why i like them is because they're filling out this story we've got no star trek going on right now so i want as much as possible um now this might be off topic it might not be quite what you want but i mean uh, bruce and i have read the physical copies of this like i continue to buy the physical copies of books i don't read them digitally and i don't think this book is any longer than the last rise of the federation one but the print is larger and there's more pages as opposed to less print on the page or more print on the pages with smaller so it to me it's a quicker read than some of the newer ones because because of the print size and whatnot it feels like you're getting through it a little quicker but um you're right not a lot happens but i don't think a lot happens in a lot of the star trek books now they're very methodical and very paced Ah, that's a good point that's a good point you 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 raise some really good uh counterbalance to, to what I was asking. And, and I think what I would have liked to have seen in this, this storyline was just some more things happen for all that page count. Because when you boil down the actual plot points, it's pretty minor. Um, and so I, I feel like, I don't know, just feel like there, there should have been more that happened. And part of that, and, and I'll, I'll be completely honest, part of that is going to be that when we get to the Romulan War books, they cut the series down instead of a trilogy to two books and it really just blows the whole thing because the first book is this expansive deal and then the second book is this truncated mess. Uh, gosh, I guess spoiler alert for that show. <laughs> um, but this felt like such a... It, it, it's that slow burn build up but by the time we get to the point where they're saying, oh, we're at war with the Romulans, you're just kind of like Really, we're we're at war with the Romulans. That that was it. That's all that it took to get us to war with the Romulans. That seems kind of, I don't know. Just like I kind of wanted more. See, to me, like I was just thinking of a term that I've heard that makes it a little more clear in my head to me is that they're playing the long game here. 
And they know that with these books, like they had they with these books by Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangels, they're like, we're going to tell the Romulan War and it builds up and they have X amount of books to get it done. You're right. They truncated at the end and they didn't know it at this time, but they are really building the long game with these books. And that's why they are so methodical and so detailed and and have a slower pace than some of the older books had, you know? Yeah. And I think you're exactly right. I think I, I guess they kind of learned that you can't always... Uh count on having the long game especially if they cut one of the books from your upcoming trilogy yeah <laughs> i feel really bad about that because the raw and war series especially once we get there gets a really bad rap but it's not their fault at all i mean it's like the clone wars getting cut down before they're finished with their story it's it's not their fault you know, they thought they had more seasons to go and they get canceled because you get sold to Disney. It It's not your fault. It really isn't. So, uh, y- yeah, you're completely right, Brandon. I think they are playing more of a long game here. And um, sadly, when it comes to the Romulan War, there just wasn't as long a game as they thought it was going to be. And that has nothing to do with the authors. It's not their fault. No, but I think one thing they they did get right with this novel is... We're saying maybe it's not as fast-paced or there's not enough meat in it, but to me, it really feels like a Star Trek Enterprise episode or two or three put together, like, you know, an, an arc of episodes. I think the pacing and the feeling of it actually feels like the TV show. And if you go back and watch some of these episodes that are relevant to this book from season four, you will see that it feels very much like those episodes did. So I think that's the other thing. They're trying to make it to be that that have that pace and that feel of the television show which leads me to the i think one of the biggest things about this book it's the kobayashi maru and this is one of the biggest things in star trek through the original series obviously uh we kind of hear reference and of course we get to see it in star trek 2 and then of course we also get to see it in star trek 09 and does for you guys that did it kind of live up to your expectations uh in your head especially the first time you read this as oh this is the kobayashi maru yeah i was so excited when this novel came out i was like oh my gosh i can't wait to read this it's about the kobayashi maru we get to find out all about what happened and i kept reading it and reading it and reading it and I'm like, okay, it was mentioned like in chapter six or something like that. And there's like 51 chapters and I just kept going and there was no mention of it again until really till you get to the end of the book. And the events that take place are similar to what we saw in Star Trek two, that the setup is, you know, there's this cargo ship and it's, it's got people who are in distress. They can't move. They're being. They're going to be attacked by these uh, Klingon warbirds, and it's a no-win situation. And Archer has to face it. But it seemed. It it just it just didn't live up to what I thought it would be. I just expected there'd be more to this. Uh, maybe following the crew longer through a book. And really playing out the whole situation of the Enterprise coming to the rescue. And it's it, it and you know what really when you think about it, when you watch 
Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan and you see that scene, it really is a, a quick scene. So really, how can you build a big book? But I guess in my mind, it was so significant. It felt like it had to be something big and it wasn't. So the second time reading, I knew what to expect. It didn't bother me as much. But yeah, just because it's a simulation and Starfleet doesn't mean that it's a huge historical event, but it did kick off the events that led to the Romulan War. See, reading this book this time, I was I was disappointed a little bit more. And I think part of the reason why I was disappointed is because I had actually read this and the Romulan War, the two Romulan War books, like in a pretty rapid succession, one after the other. They had all been released at that time. And so all of the plot points that I remember loving from this book, I think, happened in the next book, <laughs> right? So I was expecting the Kobayashi Maru scenario to happen earlier in this book because I remember all these other plot lines. And so in hindsight, I remember really enjoying it and how it worked out, but I think it's because I read them all in, in such a rapid succession. And again, this time too, I was like, yeah, I was thinking, where is it? Where is it? I thought it happened earlier in the book. What's going on? What's going on? Um, I personally really liked it. And I feel the same way now as when I first read the book is like, what a brilliant idea that this, this very important test that all Starfleet captains have to go through is something that a Starfleet captain went through, right? And how there is the no-win scenario, and he had to leave those people behind because his ship would have been destroyed. And I love it, and I think it's great that it's we got to see one of the Starfleet captains that we know and love is the person who actually went through this scenario in real life. But here's the difference with the between this and the Starfleet Academy test. In this scenario... Archer had to leave because his ship was being taken over by the uh, telecapture system. Mm -hmm. So as things were going on, he was going to start losing life support. He was going to lose systems. He was going to be a sitting duck. And the test, that's not what happens with the ship. So to me, it wasn't too much about the no-win situation. My thought was, if he didn't have telecapture, if his ship wasn't telecaptured, what would he have done? But because it was telecaptured, he had no, nothing he could do. He had to leave before it was totally taken over and he was just a sitting duck. And that's, I think, the interesting thing where uh, I guess it would be interesting to figure out when they start using the Kobayashi Maru tests for the cadets because they do change the test parameters to not give you the full ramification of actually what happened out there. Maybe it's still classified 200 years later I like that it, the yeah the, the Romulans had had this telecapture presence because nobody wants that to get out that that kind of technology existed at one point and don't want anybody really pursuing it who knows that's just my retconning brain no, that that right really there. is a good point because that even plays into Star Trek 09 in the fact that that test was even a little different because this, the Kobayashi Maru, is a Klingon freighter that is run by, taken over by a human crew, that they're using this old uh, Klingon freighter. But when we see in Star Trek 09, uh, Yohora refers to it as, to, as the USS Kobayashi Maru, and it looks more like a starship. So that even changes there. So the concept of what really happened historically is being changed, just like Trip's death in the holodeck is a change program. So maybe Section 31 is behind a lot more than we think. Those buggers. Ooh, <laughs> I like that idea. Yeah. No, I what I kind of liked uh, here, Brandon, when I reread it, I actually like it more now than I did the first time. And I like it more now just because I like the decision that Archer has to make 
because there is no other decision. You know, um, to turn around and run away and then be looked at as a coward, Archer knows he made the right decision because if Starfleet's best technology had fallen in the hands of the Romulans, they would have been totally screwed. I mean, they'd just been hosed. So he makes the only decision that is possible to make, the only logical decision, the only right decision. Also influenced by Trip. Right. Yes, influenced by Trip. So all of that together, I think, makes this for a much more fascinating look than I remembered the first time I read it. And I really, I just came away appreciating more its context and history. And then, of course, it got me thinking about the way in which the test had been changed in the future. Because the test is unwinnable in the future. You know, if you basically, if you turn around and you don't save the try to save the ship or if you do try to save the ship either way you're kind of screwed uh when you take that test um part of it is just a character test what does it say about you but it's it's an unwinnable test and uh but we also know that apparently it's different so because you're not getting any messages from a secret agent telling you oh and if you do that if you keep doing this you know, you're going to be captured by a secret Romulan ship who actually is in control, of, you know, so it it just, it's great. I really, I really like the way in which this just added a whole layer of complexity that we didn't expect when we saw the Kobayashi Maru test for the first time. And check this out. If you watch Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, who is taking the test? Savik, who is half Vulcan, half Romulan. And it's the Romulans. That caused this whole situation. Dun, dun, dun. Well, let me ask you this question here then. So when you were talking about reading the Kobayashi Maru book and you're like, oh, we never get to the Kobayashi Maru and stuff. How would you feel if the title of this book instead of the Kobayashi Maru was The No Win Scenario? That's actually a better title, I think. I think that's a great title for this book. I think so, too, because there's a lot going on in it, right? I mean, like, we've got all these situations where, you know, T'Pol goes to rescue Trip and whatnot and doesn't come away with her with her goal in mind, which is to bring him out of there, right? And, you know, you've got all these things going on, right? So we've got the Kobayashi Maru with the test. Calling it the no-win scenario references the Star Trek II that you want to reference in the book, but then you're not looking for the Kobayashi Maru scenario the entire time. You're You're waiting for some kind of payoff where he's got to go through a situation similar to that. I, I, I like that idea. I think it would have played better with this book, but of course putting Kobayashi Maru on the book is going to help sales more. <laughs> and I think that's why, it, and you know, they may have considered that title, Brandon, who knows? I don't know. I'm with Brandon on this one. Uh, uh, I think you should be working for pocket books. Brandon. I'm okay with that. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we, we do have some other uh, historical connections. Uh, in this book, because as we mentioned earlier, a piece of the action wasn't just what Trip and T'Pol were getting, <laughs> but uh, we actually learn. Well, of course, we all thought this was going to be possible when we saw Enterprise in uh, a book of the Chicago Mobsters was on a ship called the Horizon, run by Mayweather's family. Uh, well, we get that story, and uh, did that guy that did that work for you? Did that even seem to fit in this storyline for you guys? I think it I think it had to happen because okay, so what happens with the horizon leads to how Travis reacts to 
Archer. So we had to have what happened to the Horizon happen in this book. And if we're going to do that, we have to reference the fact that they've already laid that groundwork in the episodes by showing that book on the Horizon. So I'm okay that they put it in this book as a, this is what's happened on our previous mission. Again, because they're playing the long burn in these books. They're playing the long game. They're giving us a lot of details that they can't really give us in the shows. So I think it fits. I think I'm okay with it. I'm glad that we got the one scene with the Horizon ship to explain it all. Because it pays off in the next couple of books with Travis and how he reacts to Archer's decision at the end of this novel. Yeah, knowing what we get with the other books, it totally makes sense, and it totally works. If you're just taking this book as a standalone and not knowing what comes up with the other books, it almost seems like it doesn't even belong there. I don't think there's, I don't think the Horizon has much of a, a play in this book as it does the ramifications that it has on the other books later. So knowing what comes later, yeah, that definitely works. I like the the idea of the Chicago book being uh, getting. Yeah, they're cleaning out, basically what they were cleaning out the ship and getting rid of these old books. And uh, one of them is the Chicago book that they sent down to this planet. And I had to laugh at that, uh, but I thought it was good. I, I thought it worked. It was a, a nice little Easter egg in there. Well, and it was interesting to think that, uh, you know, there aren't any rules against this right now, you know, of uh, being involved with planets that aren't spacefaring races and. There aren't any rules about that right now for Starfleet or anybody else. So it's just really uh, the the fun part about it was seeing how the mistake happened. And again, just kind of proving again and again and again, as we do in Star Trek all the time, is why we have the prime directive in the first place. Uh, you just don't mess with people who aren't ready for this kind of knowledge, whether it's from an old book that we have <laughs> Or, you know, from technology that they're not ready for, you know, it's um, so, yeah, I, I think it was it was an interesting it was a fun it was a great Easter egg um, and and a, gr yeah, a great uh, retcon to explain why they were able to do all these other things like build cars and stuff because they gave them crates full of books and they just worshipped the one book, right? So it gives an explanation for what... Because you're not going to get all of that information out of that one book, right? They didn't have the description on how to build machine guns in that book, I'm sure, right? But, uh, you know, maybe there was a book on building weapons or whatnot that was also in that, you know. Yeah, like popular mechanics and, like, better homes and gardens. I mean, some magazines are in that crate of, of stuff, giving all kinds of information. Fashion And then tips. they were influenced. Yeah, fashion, too. <laughs> definitely. And then there was also an influence uh, from Doc Brown from Back to the Future because the Horizon has a flex capacitor on it to help with the warp drive. So there's another Easter egg in there. And, he, and, and you know, Dark Brown... Doc Brown should realize that he should follow the prime directive because he influenced the horizon with his flux capacitor. <laughs> with the train? Was it with the train in Back to the Future 3 that he like shot off into space? Yeah, the yes. train was flying through space and, and docked with the horizon and and uh, he shared the flux capacitor with them and then afterwards he just toot tooted off. So everybody let Michael Schindler know that Back to the Future takes place in Star Trek continuity. That's right. Back to the Future has an impact on Star Trek as well. Absolutely. So. <laughs> well, uh, talking through the book, you know, we've all read it twice now. Uh, you know, what do you think your, your final ratings would be at, at this point? Uh, where do you end up landing, Brandon? 
Um, I didn't enjoy it as much as I did the first time, but I still enjoyed it. And it could be, um, I'm going through a period in my life right now where I'm pretty busy and I'm actually kind of having trouble getting through the newer Star Trek books that are being so much longer. And I haven't enjoyed the longer books as much as I did about six months ago or whatever. So I'm sure that's got an effect on it. But uh, I still really enjoyed it a lot. Um, and I'm glad that I got a chance to read it. And I'm glad I got a chance to talk about it. Am I giving my rating right now too? Yes, okay. go ahead. Uh, I'm going to give this book. This time around, I'm going to give it three out of five Gravitic Minds. Nice. I love it. What about you, Bruce? I don't even remember exactly what I thought of this book the first time I read it. I have a feeling this time I feel pretty much the same way. I really did like the book. I like where it leads to. I like how it sets up the Romulan War. I love the characterizations of our main characters in here. Um, It just felt like Enterprise. And I, I, I think because it feels a lot like Enterprise, the show... It really works for me. And if I'm, it's, I enjoyed going from chapter to chapter. I didn't necessarily always want to put it down. So I'm going to say, I'm going to give it four chapters out of five in the Chicago book. <laughs> um, this one, uh, I firmly came down on, on my rating of uh, three out of five stolen shuttle pods. Um, it's, it's good. It's just not great. And some of the things I appreciated more in the reread and some of the things I didn't appreciate as much. So, uh, and in that, it just kind of evened out again, you know, to a a good three out of five, which, you know, is still better than average. So I think this book is definitely worth the read, especially if you're on the uh, Enterprise reread uh, or, you know, if you're if you're hitting up the the relaunch series, it's it's definitely an important part of the series, and you really can't skip any of the books because they are going to continue to set things up for the future. So really worth your time. And um, Brandon, I'm so glad you got a chance to to hang out with us here on the Literary Treks. And before we let you go, uh, let everybody know where they can find you uh, online and on the network. Well, when I'm not tra- transporting Vulcans to uh, secret bases to spy on the Romulans, uh, you can definitely find me here on Trek FM with new episodes of Melodic Treks, which is all about the music of Star Trek. And uh, I just released an episode uh, comparing and contrasting all of the different versions of the Enterprise theme, uh, which was a lot of fun. I didn't really give it an analysis or an opinion because everybody has their own opinions of it already. I just kind of laid laid out there all the different versions and and you'll either listen to it or not. And it's actually been pretty popular, so I'm quite happy with that. I wasn't sure how people would react to it. Uh, I love that episode. It was really interesting to hear the different versions. Hey, thanks. Right on. <laughs> uh, you can also find me on a few different podcasts here and there on the network. I'm trying to hit up as many of the shows as I can. Um, and you can find me on many episodes of our 50th anniversary rewatch project called From There to Here. And Oh, and Twitter, I guess, yeah. So you can find me on Twitter, at Brandon Metella, and always on the Babel Conference. Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, that was great having Brandon on. I always love hearing what other people think. Uh, You know, he he just brought a lot more interesting point of views than even some of the things I hadn't even thought about. So just to add another voice to the mix is always great. I completely agree with you, man. I've enjoyed so much having some different people on the show to talk about the books here of Star Trek. And what I love is, is just seeing how many people on the Babel conference and, and on, uh, you know, the hosting staff here 
at uh, Trek FM, like the books, you know, and so uh, it's definitely a huge part of so many people's fandom, and I love the fact that, you know, I mean, we get to do this show because of our associate producers, and Brandon Shamatola is one of them, as are you, Bruce. So both of you guys, along with Ken Tripp, y'all help us be able to bring the show to everybody each week because of Patreon, and we're a listener-supported network, so... Anybody who's wondering how you can make sure that Trek FM keeps coming to you each and every week with all of the different shows, go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can become part of our team and make sure that happens each and every week. So really appreciate everybody who does that. And Bruce, before we get out of here and let everybody go, uh, let everybody know where they can find you online and uh, what you're up to. Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at admiral underscore rex and uh you know please follow me because uh i love tweeting with people and talking about stuff like this and then you can also find me in the babel conference and i do some occasional things over at starwarsreport.com well and of course you can find me on twitter at matt rushing zero two you can also find me on the orb with chris jones talking exclusively about deep space nine and then of course i'm also on the 602 club our general geek show talking about all things geeky but not star trek so we have all those other fandoms we want to talk about that's the place we do that here on trek fm and of course you can find me uh on aggressive negotiations with john mills it's a star wars show we talk all about star wars we pick a great new topic each week and that's on the nerdparty.com and of course on itunes under aggressive negotiations well thank you so much for joining us and until next time live long Read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.